This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book, and we are dealing this evening with the prison ministry, or the twofold ministry of the Apostle Paul. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening to this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off while we read together the 20th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. There's quite a feature in this chapter of the combination of the very wonderful, spiritual, and the very homely. Uh, I don't know whether any of you uh, realise that the Apostle went on till midnight, till somebody fell asleep. Of course, you don't always get people falling asleep, and if they do, they're not always so revived as they were in those days. Um, but I think you will discover that the Apostle Paul usually didn't... Um, great faith with folks, and I do hope that nobody who has the temptation to run on a meeting half an hour after the time with everybody sitting on edge and uh, missing their buses would take the pew from this passage and say, well, Paul did it. No, I think this is an extraordinary thing. And you will notice, uh, I suppose, with a certain amount of interest, that there were some Bereans here. So Patia of Berea, he was there, which is rather interesting because we are going to deal with the twofold ministry of the Apostle, which is revealed in this chapter. And that has a, a bearing upon us. Uh, we were singing, you remember, sing, we were singing 105, you need not turn to it, I'll remind you. It opens with these words. Now blessed in heavenly places, in Christ at God's right hand, and filled with all his fullness, complete in him to stand. And there are churches you could go to where if the folks stood up to sing that, they would not know where to find it in the New Testament. Those words were taken from Paul's prison ministry. And then somebody says to you, and what is the prison ministry? Well, friends, it was the ministry that Paul exercised when he was in prison. Paul, what's that got to do with us? Well, he says in Ephesians chapter 3, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God given unto me to you, Lord, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. If that's not stating that he had a message and a ministry which was associated with a mystery that nobody had ever heard about, and he only received it after he became the prisoner, what is the use of language at all? So I felt that as we were looking at the Acts of the Apostles in this month, I did think nothing was going to be recorded. I was being let off, but they're taping me just the same, friends, so somebody will get it and share it with us. We looked at the Acts of the Apostles as a whole and found that we could go through its teaching by observing three cities. Jerusalem at the beginning, Antioch in the middle, Jerusalem uh, and Rome at the end. And the terms that are used are Jews only. If you don't know where to find it, you'll find it in the Acts of the Apostles. Those who were scattered abroad after the, the persecution that arose about Stephen went everywhere preaching the word to none but Jews only. That's a long way through the Acts of the Apostles, you'll find that. Then in the middle at Antioch, he still speaks to the Jews, but he said, Whosoever among you feareth God as well. The Gentiles, he said, are coming in, for so it is written. 
You count yourselves unworthy of everlasting life? No, we turn to the Gentiles. And then at the end, he rehearses once more with the Jews at Rome for a whole day the things concerning our Saviour and the Kingdom of God. And when they were still unrepentant and unbelieving, he quoted Isaiah 6 for the last time in Scripture and said, the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles. And that's where we come in. We do not belong to a period when we have to say the Jew first. We are not wild olive branches grafted into the olive tree of Israel. For there's no olive tree of Israel at the moment for us to be grafted into. We belong to a new company that was never known before. A body in which every member is on absolutely equal terms. Now all these things are a part of the prison ministry of the Apostle Paul. And alas, although we may not so say, God knows what he's doing, the generality of Christian folk have no more knowledge of it, I was going to say, than the man in the moon, but he's more up to date, isn't he, today, than even some of the teachings of Scripture. Well, now we're going to try to ex explore this a little bit, and although you are listening to me before we start, you say, well, I know all about it. Well, we bring out of our treasure, I trust, things new and old, and you sit back and be very glad and pray for those who will hear it for the first time. For sometimes it means the opening of a door to blessings that are beyond dreams. But first of all, we just examine this 20th chapter a little bit more closely. We not only observe the uh, little, little bit about the speaking a long time till somebody falls asleep, but there's another little bit there that I've often uh, used myself when I've been away from home and meeting after meeting has followed, and you do get to a point where you say, oh, if I could only have ten minutes to myself. And then you know what's going to happen. They see me putting my hat on, and somebody says, you going out? I said, yes. He said, I'll come with you. I said, you won't. You go back and read Acts 20, verse, 50, verse 13 and 14. Well, by the time he's looked at that, I've gone. He said, this is what it says. And we went before to ship. They went before the ship, and sailed on Asos, they're intending to take in Paul, for so had he appointed, minding himself to go afoot. And if you look at the map, there's a piece that sticks out like this, and they went right round the coast like that, and he walked 50 miles on his own across that bit and joined them. Nice little human bit, isn't it? Just for a moment to get a few hours to himself. Well, enough of that, although there's plenty of that in the scriptures. For God knows our, our frame, he remembers we are dust. Now, when he reached Miletus in verse 17, uh, if you don't know the uh, geography, let me retranslate it. The River Thames. London is wonderfully situated as a city, just about, what, 60 miles back from the sea, especially in the early days when invasion was so easy and possible. So you imagine on the map that Paul has arranged already that the folks in London should go down and meet him at South End. And then he goes on his way and they go back. He was saving time for he was wanting to get to Jerusalem. And he starts to speak to them. And this is how he speaks to them. Ye know, verse 18, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I had been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, I always stop there for I think, a man must be genuinely humble to be able to put down in black and white that he served in humility. For this was the genuine thing. He just said it because it was true. 
And he says, many temptations and tears and which befell me by the lie you made of the Jews. And he's rehearsing a ministry. I kept back nothing. I've taught you publicly. And you could imagine that by the time he'd said these words, those who listened to him looked at one another. They said, well, what's this mean? Does that mean to say he's leaving us? It did, friends. He was, he was bringing a ministry to a close. But he was starting another one. It wasn't that he was going to retire on a pension. The apostle never did that. He said, verse 22, And now, behold, I go bound. This man was the bond slave of Jesus Christ long before any Roman shackles were put on his wrists. He said, I go bound in spirit. And I'm ready for it. And when the actual bondage came, of course, it made it so much easier. He says, I go, I go bound in spirit into Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. I've got no details. But I do know this, with this exception, that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions are waiting for me. The word abide is to wait. So he knew that he was going to be submit, subjected to bonds. And if you get, look at chapter 21 for a moment, you'll see one instance of how they warned him. Verse 11. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and he shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So he knew. He was told that. And then they tried to dissuade him. And when he said he was not merely ready to go to Jerusalem, but to die if needs be for the Lord's sake, they said, oh, then the will of the Lord be done. So it was the will of the Lord all the time. So the, the, the Apostle Paul had to withstand even the attitude of his own brethren who would try to spare him. Well, back again, back again in verse uh, 23, verse 24 now. But none of these things move me. Now that could be lifted out and said the man had no feeling. But the man was a very sensitive man if you read the story. I think Peter would have, would have endured a lot more shocks without turning a hair that the Apostle Paul went through because of a different temperament. But none of these things move me, he said. Neither count on my life dear unto myself. And that's the secret. He was already offered, already willing to be poured out as a drink offering, as he said in the epistle to the Philippians presently, so that I might finish my course with joy. And there's the secret of this man. And here he's starting to run. And in the last epistle that he wrote, he said, I have finished my course. Here he says, all that I might finish my course. Writing to Timothy at the end, he said, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. So that's good to know that somebody not only made a good start, but persisted and came and touched the tape at the end. And not only to finish my course, but he enlarges it, and to finish the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Well, those words indicate, if they mean anything, anything at all, that Paul was saying, I'm bringing one ministry to a conclusion, I'm now facing another. My public ministry going from place to place and plotting my journeys here and there are finished. I'm now going to be taken. He was longing to go to Rome. I suppose you remember he, he, he said, after this I must see Rome. 
And the Lord in a vision said to him, quite right, Paul, after you've witnessed for me in this city, you shall go to Rome. But Paul didn't have to bother about paying his expenses. It was the Romans that carried him there and took him there, so that was all right, wasn't it? Although, of course, he was put in prison, uh, but he wasn't put into a jail in the dungeon sense. He was a prisoner in military custody. He'd broken no law of Rome. It was merely a fanatical Jewish opposition that put him there. And so he had a hired house. The only thing, he was shackled continually by the wrist to a Roman sentry who was there on guard and, of course, was changed. Well, I can't go in the whole of these chapters, but I thought you ought to get the atmosphere of it, you see. And here he says at the finish, he runs over, first of all, how he had taught them and kept back nothing, and then at the last, he says, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. And then he says something else which is very touching. Yes, or yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my necessities. But he went a stage further. And to them that were with me. Not only did the apostle fall labour with his own hands to keep himself, but he had to keep some of these other people who couldn't. He says so. So here we have this wonderful apostle. As I said earlier, the only one who had common sense and gumption enough to go gather some firewood was not the prisoners or the sailors, but it was the apostle Paul gathering firewood. So you see, it doesn't always follow that because you believe God and trust his word that you're the ninny of the family. Now, some people think that's the case, but it doesn't always work out. Of course, present company may be accepted, of course, I don't know. And I wouldn't like to speak about myself. Well now, just glitz with you at the analysis of this, which is set out on this chart. For this will be a guide to you if you know it and keep it, got it in your mind as to the way in which underlying personal scriptures. I'm perfectly certain of one thing, that the Apostle Paul wouldn't have the remotest idea that he was speaking, or Luke wouldn't have had the remotest idea when he was writing that underneath what he was saying was a most perfect pattern. That, that's the, one of the evidences of inspiration. You know, I, I entertain a nice little idea that when we get to glory, one of my, I forget which one of my daughters said, she was a tiny mite then, she may have changed her mind now, the one she wanted to see most was David. I said, yes, that would be lovely. And I said, you know what I want to see? No, Daddy. I said, I want to see the Apostle Paul and ask him if he'd ever seen the structure of the Epistle to the Galatians. Will there be a time when he says to me, a structure in Galatians? I never see it. Let's have a look. Because I'm moderately certain that he had the remotest idea when he wrote Galatians, he was writing inspired scripture. He was trying to save that little company from being desolated by this legalism. Paul already got into it. And then God overruled it to become a word that can come right down the ages, right down to the present time and speak to us. What well, do you see? If in chapter, uh, the first verse is he calls the elders to come. And then at the last, he leaves them. Let's look at that leave taking. Verse 36, And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. That's an end, isn't it? You'll see my face no more. This is the end of my public witness. From now on, 
It's not very long before he's taken prisoner at Jerusalem. And there he is for two years in Caesarea being listened to by this one and that one and the other one, one hoping to get money out of him and whatnot until at last he got so, shall I say, fed up. He said, I appeal unto Caesar. And the moment he did that as a Roman, all the magistrates there had to stand back. They couldn't stop him and away he had to go. Well now it says, he says here, I have kept back nothing. And at the, at the, at the bottom here says, I have not shunned. And remember that I cease not. He's calling attention to the character of his witness. And one of the words that he uses there for keeping back nothing is a ship, shipping term. And there's an indication in the writings of the apostle that he was one of those types of persons who picked up words on the way he was going and said, well, that'd be a good one to use. A little bit like I think Shakespeare was. Listening to everybody and keeping it in his memory till he could use it later on. I've reefed up nothing, he said, like the reef up a sail. There is a temptation, and he knew it. He wrote to the Corinthians and said, we have not handled the word of God deceitfully. We have not corrupted it. And one of the words used there is, we haven't watered it down. There's a temptation on the part of some, and it's a great one, to say, well, don't emphasise this prison ministry of the Apostle Paul and its peculiar thing. You, you can preach the epistle to the Romans and the gospel of John, and people will give you a hearing and you'll get a fine congregation, but you'll preach the half of the way. So what? The Apostle and the Scripture urges that a steward is not to be popular or even clever, but faithful. And here we have to be faithful to a trust that we have received. You will notice too that he says, I have showed you. He puts that in verse 35. I've showed you all. And the word show, which of which that's a part, D-E-I-K in the middle of it, this little green word here, uh, is the word that he's used in the first verse of the book of the Revelation. He sent and showed it by his angel, by a series of signs. And the apostle says, I haven't merely spoken to you, dear friends. I've showed you. I've showed you by a series of signs. And what were they? I laboured with my own hands and those who were with me. That's a sort of a way in which the doctrine can be demonstrated, isn't it? And the one thing about the apostle Paul, whether you liked him or not, you'd have to agree that his doctrine and his manner of life walked together. He was a man who could write an epistle. And he could write to someone who would knew him intimately, like Timothy. And he said, the things which you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same, see, the same, you do. What you have heard and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. That's the sort of man whose words have power, because it's backed by a life that's in harmony. And so we have the emphasis upon this. I have showed you. Up there, teaching, I have taught you. The teaching and the showing balance one another and go together. Well now, time will not permit us to go into this too intimately because I've got another chapter that I want to refer to. Uh, we now pass over chapters 20, 22, where we find him taken Caesarea, at last he appeals unto Caesar. And um, it's all over by the time we get to chapter 26. Because in chapter 25, 
we find that Agrippa uh, comes and um, in verse 23, on the morrow when Agrippa was come and Berenice with great pomp and was entered into the palace of hearing, the place of hearing with the chief captains and principal men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought forth. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men which are here present with us, you see this man, about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. You remember when um, the thing was brought up earlier. The Roman governor there, he said, if that's a matter of your law, you see to it. He was not interested. This was a matter of their law, and there were a lot of fanatics in their view. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I determined to send him. Of whom I am no certain thing to write. You see, this was the thing that troubled them. Another person said, what, what can I put down? I don't know what to say. A charge against him. I must make an accusation. Wherefore I have brought him forth before you, especially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had I might have someone to write. For it seemeth to be unreasonable to send a prisoner and not with all to signify the crimes that laid against him. Well, that's reasonable, isn't it? Well, now Paul has got his opportunity to speak in the presence of King Agrippa. And this is how he does it. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Oh, I do wish some people had as much decency as King Agrippa. For they won't let you speak for yourself. They'll tell you what you're supposed to teach. And when you look at it, you don't recognize your own child. So, let's remember that too. He said, you're permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul, you know this? He stretched forth his hand. Luke writes this, Paul, like he, with his eyes, fixing his eyes upon him. Paul stretching forth his hand. Paul doing this. He must have been a character now, I suppose. And Luke was fond of him. Only Luke is with me. Stuck to him right to the very end. And Luke is writing this. He says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself at this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I'm accused of the Jews, especially, he says, as I know you're an expert. He doesn't do any harm to tell the truth if it's a nice little patronising bit first, you see, especially if you're a prisoner in front of a king and a judge. Then he says, my manner of life from my youth, my nation know. And he says, from the beginning, verse 5, the most straightest sect of all. Of course, uh, that is a figure of speech because you can't be most straightest. But you could criticise Shakespeare when he says the most unkindest cut of all, but you wait till you're in that predicament, then you'll find it perhaps natural. The most straightest sect of our religion. I live the Pharisee. And now I stand and am judge for the hope for the promise made of God unto our fathers. Unto which promise our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. I'm not going to embark on this theme, but didn't you know that the ten tribes are lost, Paul? No, he said, I never heard about that. He says, my uh, twelve tribes are instantly serving God. And what about James? He wrote to the twelve tribes scattered abroad greeting. And the, never, the letter never came back, said, not known. He found them all right, so we'll leave that part to speak for itself. He says in verse 8, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? You see, it is a thing almost incredible, isn't it, without the consciousness and knowledge of God and his redeeming love? 
That was the hopeless condition in which the world was in. The religions and the philosophies gave no hope beyond the grave. And so as the Apostle put it in 1 Corinthians 15, if there be no resurrection of the dead, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Anybody corrected me and said, I've forgotten to say, and be merry? It isn't there, friends. You can't even be merry. You only just eat and drink, and tomorrow you die. So he said, I really thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I shut up folks in prison, and I used my voice against them, and I persecuted them in strange cities. And then he tells the story of the road to Damascus. You know it. How he was on that way, breathing out, threatening and slaughter. And then, he was stricken down by a paralyzing light. And he heard a voice. And this man who was a Pharisee and a Hebrew said, Lord. Now he may have meant by the word Lord afterwards, writing the New Testament, something different. I'm not going to argue that. But I know this, that that man, when he said Lord, at that moment, when he was not a Christian, but was a Pharisee, there's only one person he had in mind. That was the Jehovah of the Old Testament. That was the name, Lord. He looked up to heaven. That's the place where the Lord lives, in, in the Pharisee's view. And he heard that voice. And he said, Lord, who art thou? And would you believe it? The voice of heaven said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. That's the finish of the Apostle Paul as, as a persecutor and the beginning of the Apostle Paul as the bondslave of Jesus Christ. The whole thing was answered at once. He knew why the tomb was empty at Jerusalem. He knew why they were circulating those rumours. He knew why these fishermen who had gone and run away were suddenly standing for the truth. He knew all that. But that one fact, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise, stand upon thy feet, and so on. Now, if you were to ask, say, a Bible quiz and say, to what chapter would you go in the Acts of the Apostles to discover what Christ said to Paul on the road to Damascus, I think a good many of us would fall into the trap and say, Acts 9. Well, you say, surely. But when you go there, it's what Ananias told Paul. This is where he tells you himself. Not what Ananias came to tell him, but what the Lord said to him. Now, let's listen. He said, At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the, of the sun shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And the word pricks is just the word an ox goad, and it was used by the farmer in ploughing, so that a backsliding heifer who was jibbing at the plough would jib right back onto a sharp point. But if it was pulling, it would be a long way away from it. He said, that's what you're doing, Saul. Don't you see? Andrew found his brother Peter. Who found Saul? You know? Stephen. He sat, he stood listening to Stephen, and they were pelting him with stones, and he held their clothes, and he saw that man's face like an angel. And he had to say to himself, and I am siding with those brutes and the man who's praying for his murderers on against him. It was worrying this Pharisee. And what did he do? He stifled his conscience. He said to the Sanhedrin, give me some work to do. And I always think of my old dad who muttered up Proverbs terribly. He said, a guilty conscience requires no recreation. And he was true. Paul would have agreed with that. The thing he didn't want was time to think. And 
The Lord put his finger on it. He said, you're jibbing. You know already. And this is where it comes to a crisis. And Acts 9 says, as soon as he got back again, he confounded the Jews by proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Don't you see? He was so fully prepared. He knew everything except one thing. That the Bible that he loved and studied and knew was all focusing upon that one person. And when he got that, he got the lot. He was a man whose ministry could be described as Christocentric. The centre of it all, the risen, ascended, the crucified, risen, ascended Christ. And so he said, now here's the bit we've got to watch very carefully. Verse 16. But rise and stand upon thy feet. I was just looking to see where I got the um, the uh, structure here. You notice in where it says letter E, verses 16 to 18, Paul's commission revealed for the first time. Revealed for the first time. And again in 22 and 23, the first commission restated. He's going over the ground, but he's bringing it forward. So here we are again now. That rise and stand upon my feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. To make thee a minister and a witness. Now look at the word both. The word both. It must mean in the ordinary use of the word two things. You can't say both if there's only one ministry. If there's only one call. But he said I'm going to tell you of another one Paul. I'm making you a minister and a witness both. Of those things which thou hast seen. That's in the past. And of those things in which I will appear unto thee. That's in the future. The past is over, said, he said to Paul. The future is now coming very near and becoming the present. Now what about the ministry of the things which thou hast seen? Will you turn just back a page or two to the um, 21st chapter, I think it is. 22nd chapter, possibly. Yes, this is what Ananias is telling him. Verse 14, and he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. That's your witness, Paul. Go on with that. Now he says, I've stopped. I've got another witness. He says, not only will I, have I appeared to you once on the road to Damascus, but I've appeared unto you again. He said, I will appear unto thee. And he's done it. He said to Agrippa, he's fulfilled the second time. He's visited me again. We don't know how. It may have been in secret, but he says so. And he says, I made you a witness of those things which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people, that's the people of Israel, and from the Gentiles. You see, Paul couldn't be delivered from the Gentiles in Acts 9. There were no Gentiles bothering about Paul in Acts 9. They were out of it. He was, a, he was a dealing with the people of Israel only. But now he's dealing both with the Roman power that got him as a prisoner and with the antagonism of the Jews. And he said, I'm delivering you from them both. Unto whom now I send thee. That's to the Gentiles. So in the last chapter, the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles. And you can tell when a dispensation commences, not because you look into the secrets of God, but you hear God saying to his servant, I'm sending you to say that, and that's the beginning of it. All the way through this act, you get those marks. Peter said, you are the children of the prophets. It was therefore right 
that it should be first sent unto you. They, the children of the prophets. Then in Acts 13, and on the, in the synagogue at Antioch, he says, um, to you is the word of this salvation sent, whether you're children of Abraham or whether you're whosoever that fear God. And then here, at the last, chapter 28, Israel dismissed, and the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles. You have no right to pick up any part of the Bible and take it to yourself. It must be sent to you. Don't you realize that you have a book here which deals with a variety of people, all sorts of callings, going to be enjoyed in at least three different spheres. There's going to be a renewed earth. There's going to be the heavenly Jerusalem. And there's the position at the right hand of God far above all heavens. And so if you pick bits and pieces out of everywhere, you'll get such a muddled idea that you won't know whether you're what they say coming or going. But if you'll let the word of God be rightly divided and say, who was sent to me as a Gentile? Was Matthew sent to you? Was Peter sent to you? Was James sent to you? There's only one man in the New Testament who is called the Apostle of the Gentiles. Well, that divides up the New Testament then so far as I'm concerned. I want a lot. I need it all. But it doesn't all speak about me. It teaches me. But it doesn't all speak about me. I don't put myself into the position of it. I wait. Now this apostle of the Gentiles, he was working through the Acts of the Apostles right to the end with the possibility that Israel would repent. And if Israel would repent, the kingdom would be set up and the whole thing would be finished. So when he wrote to the Thessalonians, he shared with them the hope of the second coming of Christ in his own lifetime. He said, we which are alive and remain, well, that was true at that time because Israel was still on the edge. They might repent, they might accept their Saviour, and then there came a moment when they went out and they didn't. Well, then he changed his position altogether. So, we are thankful for the testimony of Paul, the free man, the apostle of the Gentiles, who lays the great foundation, the doctrinal foundation beneath our feet for all time, which is summed up in the great epistle to the Romans. Justification by faith, without the works of the law, salvation by grace, forgiveness through the precious blood of Christ, they are there and there they remain. They don't alter. But the place of Israel in the epistle to the Romans does. For they're no longer first. They're out of it. If they, if they believe now, they don't believe that because they happen to be Jews, they believe because they're sinners. The same as we. They have no preference, but they did once. When the Jew objected in Romans and said, well, what advantage is there of being a Jew? He said, much every way. But there's no advantage of being a Jew just now, except sometimes the other way around. But the day will come when they will be first again, when they look upon him whom they pierced, and this present dispensation has ended, and that is picked up again, which has for the time being laid down. And so we have the emphasis upon this fact. Delivering thee from the people, and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee. I must mention this again because I don't know who will be listening to this, but there are some who object very much to the teaching that I stand for, and they pounced upon this fact that in some manuscripts the word now is omitted. Well, you know, that betrays their animus, because if they were dealing with some other verse and some other thing, they would say, well, now means the, the uh, present, 
and I send thee, is the present. So whether you have the word now in it, or whether you don't, it's present, isn't it? Well, they wanted to make it past. It was referring to Act 9. The word now only intensifies the present. But if you leave it out, it's still there. You can't say, unto I in the past am sending you. You can't say that. If I am sending you in the present, it's now. I just mentioned that in case you should feel that there was insuperable difficulty. Well, that leads us then to the conclusion of the matter. After he had spoken to the, in this way, he says, my early ministry can be summed up like this. Verse 22, having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than that than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. His early ministry, you've only got to start the first chapter of Romans. He says, Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, separated unto the gospel of God, then in brackets, which he had promised before by his holy prophets in the scriptures. See, the very second verse. Or when he sums up the great basis of his gospel that he preached, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for therein is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's quoting Habakkuk. This man said nothing that was not substantiated and backed by the Old Testament scriptures. But now you turn the page and look at the epistle to the Ephesians. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world, never mentioned anywhere else in the whole range of scripture that any company of believers were ever chosen before the foundation of the world. So you say, oh, we mustn't be too particular. I'd like to see you when you were sent for by the solicitor to to hear Aunt Mary Ann's will read and say, don't be too particular what's put in it. This is the will of God. This is picking out your inheritance and you say, don't be so particular. This is vital. If you stick here, your eyes will be shut and you won't see it. But if you say, never before this moment was any company ever said to be chosen before the foundation of the world, this is something new. Yes? And then it says, they're blessed with all spiritual blessings. Or you say, no, no, come now. Every blessing we have throughout the New Testament is spiritual. Yes, I know. But you find it. Find it. You won't discover that expression is used till you get to the epistle to the Ephesians. And then, where are they to be enjoyed? In heavenly places. Where's that? Where Christ sits at the right hand of God, far above all heavens. There's no passage in scripture outside of these prison ministry of Paul that tell you that that is a possibility for any believer. And then, when you've said it all, there's a shrug of the shoulders. Well, you see, that's all right. Don't worry. There will not be one single member of the church that will be left out. And your ministry and mine is not so much to be organising great meetings and running great campaigns, but to be ever ready to speak a word in season, to meet this person, that person and the other, and you drop the word, and by the mercy of God it turns out that you have been contacted somebody else that was foreknown before the foundation of the world. If that's not ministry that's worth doing because you haven't got a spectacle to show to people what can be. And that's what's happened in this very chapel. There are some who come here who have the remotest idea of its teaching till somebody just said a word to them. Just said a word to them. And they came. Then some turn on their heel and say it's heresy. All right, that's all right. 
I'm in the same box as the Apostle Paul over there. And another one says, you know I've been looking for this half my lifetime. One man came to me many years ago, and I never, I'd never seen him, never met him. He said to me, I've been looking for you for 20 years. And he didn't know I was existed. I knew what he meant. That he was waiting for this thing and couldn't put it into shape. He'd been buzzed all up by the other teachers. He was floundering about in the Sermon on the Mount. He was doing all things like that with one thing he didn't know, that Paul's prison ministry was the one that was governing this present interval. And we are living in a period which you could put in brackets like that. Here was the purpose of the ages and prophetic times, Daniel's prophetic times running right out. Christ had come just as Daniel said. Then it all stops. The clock stops. It's going to be picked up again after the interval, after about 2,000 years an interval and carry on, and the nations of the earth, all the troubles round about the Iraq and Persia and Palestine, were all getting ready to pick up the threads where they left off nearly 2,000 years ago, when the king of kings was rejected. And we are living in that interval, and that interval is coming to its close. I'm no prophet, I don't know then. I only know that we are living near the edge and end of time, so far as this calling is concerned. And so, we can't help but feel that this little chapel, a tiny spot here on the map, and the radiating of the tape ministry which has been going on now for these few years, is under the Lord's control and hand, and we feel it's a wonderful responsibility as well as a privilege. And it's calling out the ones and the twos from all these places of the earth who respond to this fact that here is a ministry which is meeting them and was sent to them. Now, when we say that, we're not leaving the rest of the scriptures. We need the whole Bible before we can understand any one of the callings, but we don't put ourselves in the whole Bible. I can't understand what it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. I look at that word foundation, catabole, and catabole means to break down and destroy. If you go to your doctor and he speaks about metabolism and catabolism and animalism, what he's telling you about the building up of your body or the breaking of it down. And yet we, we get it translated in our Bible, foundation. In the Old Testament it's confounding, not founding. And it goes back to Genesis 1 verse 2. There's the overthrow of the world and we were chosen before Genesis 1 verse 2. And no other calling goes back there. All other callings are since the foundation of the world. This one is before. That's the testimony of the Lord's prisoner. And so, in order to round this out as far as I can possibly in this few minutes, I want to read the words of Ephesians chapter 3, just a few verses. I'm not going to emulate the apostle and nobody in many think his second name is Eutychus. Ephesians 3. For this cause... I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. That's a challenge, isn't it? And the Paul, Paul knew it because he stops. He doesn't go any further. He was going to say something, but he doesn't say it. Uh, have you ever been in that fix? Have you ever started to speak to somebody on these lines and you look at the glazed look on their face? You say, oh, dear goodness me. Here, look. And you have to start here, right the way back. Oh, I don't know how long it takes you to get right through Matthew. Go not into the way of the Gentiles. Only the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Peter's attitude to Cornelius. I'm a Jew. Oh, and then the time's gone and he catches his bus. And you say, well, all right, we'll meet again. But we have these baffling things. And the apostle said, for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, 
do something, say something, but he says, oh, I'm assuming that you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me, to you, Lord. How that by revelation, he said, I got this by sitting at no man's feet. I received this by revelation. By revelation, he made known unto me the mystery. Now, every other mystery in the scriptures has got a title to it. This is the mystery par excellence. It's an extraordinary thing that there's only one Alpine club in the world. Did you know that? And that's not Swiss. The Swiss have to have a Swiss Alpine club, would you believe it? The only Alpine club that has no other name to it is the English one, because they were there first. See? So this is the mystery, without anything to say as to what it is. The mystery. Now then, as I wrote before in a few words, when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. And then people say it's all one and the same. He said, look, the mystery of Christ has started in Genesis 3.15, when it says, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. And it's been added to by every writer in the Old Testament and new to this moment. He said, but I've got a knowledge of the mystery of Christ, which just puts the cap on everybody else's knowledge. And you say, what does he mean by that? Well, look, if you look at the Septuagint version of Psalm 8, against that psalm it says, the secrets of the sun. The secrets of the sun. That was written there by some Greek writer in the Septuagint. The secrets of the sun. And so Paul takes that psalm 8 and he says, one in a certain place testified, thou what is man that mindful of him, thou hast put all things under his feet. But I'll tell you what Paul never says. He never quotes Psalm 8 there. He, says, he doesn't say all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, fowl and deer. He says, principality of power and throne and dominion. Don't you see what he says? He says, look, there's not a single writer in the whole Bible who could see that all things under his feet that were under Adam's feet, the sheep and the oxen, was a picture of all under his feet, principality and power. He said, now I've written that before in chapter 1, at the end. Because people go looking about this, they say, Oh, what a pity. As I wrote before in a few words, Oh, where is it? As a lost epistle, oh, we're all done. But he says, I've just written it in this very epistle. I've told you that nobody in the whole Bible has said all things under his feet need. He says in Corinthians, it's so universally true that the only one who is not under his feet is God himself. Now he says, we'll pick that up again which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets, by the Spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, stop there, and you'll be wrong again, you must go right straight on, promise in Christ by the gospel whereof I was made a minister. Oh, we won't allow Peter in here, because Peter had to agree long before that just as the gospel of the circumcision was committed to Peter, so the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed to Paul. And so we could go on. This testimony. Writing his last epistle before he died, he wrote to his son Timothy, he says, Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. So the prison ministry, is an essential feature in the doctrine of Scripture. And you may write your books and you may preach your sermons, you may teach for all your work. And if you haven't got that, you've got an unfinished Bible. Because the Epistle to the Colossians, I'm still watching the clock, friends. The Epistle to the Colossians says this. 
He says, I am now a minister. Verse 24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is a church, whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you, our version says, to fulfill the word of God. Well, in the next chapter, it's the word complete. Ye are complete in him. It's not fulfilling anything. He says, unless you've got the mystery that's entrusted to Paul the prisoner in your Bible, you haven't got a complete Bible. Now, of course, everybody's got it. It's bound in Morocco, and it's got red edges. Oh, yes. But so far as they're concerned, they might as well not have it in print. They don't know it. They haven't a complete Bible. And the complete Bible is when you get all this building up from Adam and Abraham right the way through, and then on the very top, the top stone is placed by the testimony of the Lord's prisoner. So we'll finish it by reading the next verse. What is it that completes the word of God? Even the mystery, which has been hid from ages and from generations. The, you know, he puts it the other way around in Ephesians, it was hid in God. Here it says it's hidden away from the ages and generations. And when you believe it, somebody says you can find it in the book of Genesis. And you say, where do you find that? Oh, when Isaac meets Rebecca. Oh, I say. You're supposed to believe the Bible. If it tells you it was hidden in God and hidden from the generations, it's not in type or shadow. It was never known until this man received it by revelation. And that's the reason why we are here. And that's the ministry we have to give. It's like a voice crying in the wilderness. But blessed be God, some even believed John the Baptist, didn't they? Well, we know that some are believing, even though it sounds sometimes preposterous in the eyes of many. So he says, From the even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, and now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ among you, not Christ in you personally. But the fact that Christ is now preached among you Gentiles, irrespective of Israel, is the evidence that something new is afoot. Well, I thought that this would round off our uh, studies that we've been having in the Acts of the Apostles. We looked at it in the large, the three great steps, Jerusalem, Antioch, Rome, Peter's ministry at Pentecost, Paul's ministry at the beginning, laying the doctrinal foundation, and Paul's ministry at the end, when the door was shut on Israel and the door opened to us. And here a little glimpse of the testimony of the Lord's prisoner. Oh, if we know it, let's thank God we've had eyes to see it. If we say we don't see it, the apostle says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling.